Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. This week, we're very happy to welcome John Weisiger, who is a philosopher and author of a very recent book called Brian Eno's Ambient One Music for Airports. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We talked about ambient music very recently in episode 150, and what Doug and I both said is the problem with the genre of ambient music is that most of it is not ambient music, and no one really agrees on what ambient music is. Ambient One Music for Airports was like Brian Eno was planting a flag someplace with the word ambient on it, because we didn't use it before. What is your definition of ambient music, before we talk about the album itself? Yeah, well, first, I, I agree that uh, it's used to cover a lot of different kinds of music, some with simple 4-4 four, four beats, uh, played at low volumes. Others are very immersive, and they sound like wind over an iceberg. Um, and then more kind of uh, asynchronous uh, flowing music that can be calming but distracting at the same time. So I, when I was thinking about it, I thought you could sometimes you can define music uh, structurally according to its form. It follows certain rules and patterns. And then you can also, it seemed ambient was more of a function. And I heard in the way you all were talking in your ambient episode that Lots of things could be used ambiently, including things that you might normally consider uh, what I would that require what I call program listening, where you're supposed to sit down and concentrate and give everything you have to follow it. Right. What some people call deep listening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so the deep listening, then that's the that is even like more immersive, because I think in deep listening, you're supposed to listen to the walls and your body and that Pauline Oliveros kind of mode. Right. But I think, yeah, so I decided that uh, the best way to think about ambient is to think about a function that lots of musics can play. Um, and But probably depending on where you are, it has to have certain qualities to serve that function. Um, I don't think uh, Moby or Aphex Twin sometimes would be am effectively ambient in the same context as music for airports, and the context in which were their ambient, uh, you know, chill rooms and the like, um, you would need something a little more exciting and you might need some kind of beat because of where people are coming from and what they've been up to. <laughs> and they might need something with a more regular pattern. So I think the situation puts the structural demands. Yeah, I tend to think of ambient music as something that you put on because you want musical wallpaper or you put on because you're having a dinner party or you're in a museum installation which is where brian eno has created a lot of music and that the music itself is intended to be secondary to the context yeah and that's that fits the way he puts it in the little manifesto that it contributes an atmosphere or a tent even the you know the satis music musical furniture described as music to be heard not listened to and that's the way people describe the kind of mood music, uh, George Melacrino records from like the 50s and the 60s. So this basic idea of to be heard, not listened to, seems to capture what the function is. But music for airports is, for me, too hard not to listen to. Exactly. It's just occasionally so interesting. You're like, 
what was I doing? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. And that I think is part of its power is that it, it dislocates us a little. And, and in, in the ambient music episode, I said to Doug, I could name that tune in one note. Actually, it's three notes because you have those first intros before you get that boom. And, and that boom is like several notes at different octaves. And there's a resonance to it that is just, it, it's like you can't miss it if you're familiar with the record. It, it's true that there's something that somehow, I think, I'm going to be bold. Brian Eno failed in his experiment with music for airports because it is too interesting to leave on just as ambient music. On the other hand, I can put on Grateful Dead records and listen to them as ambient music. So again, it's context, it's intention. There's a whole lot of things going on. I, I need to point out, you are a philosopher. You teach about philosophy, you write about philosophy, including you've written about Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of my favorite writers. And you've written this book in a a series published by Oxford University Press called Oxford Keynotes, and it includes short books like yours about different key classical music works, Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky, Debussy's Claire de Lune, Copland's Appalachian Spring, Arvel Pert's Tabula Rasa. But how did you convince them to accept Brian Eno in that sort of, in that filter? Because this is filtering highbrow classical music, isn't it? Yeah, I think... Um... So the editor also teaches at Emory, Kevin Carnes, and he wrote the Arvo Pert book. And the thought was that they'd have a handful of works that gathered a fair amount of attention and that were outside of the classical canon. So they were already looking for uh, works like that. They just couldn't be jazz because Oxford has its own jazz series. And so I... Uh, thought that, you know, there's a way in which music for airports, even though it's somewhat unlike the rest of the genre, is still regarded as a genre-defining work. I think that's probably a key. If you have that much impact and can generate that big a conversation, and I love the fact that there are musical refutations of music for airports, like music for real airports Yeah, by Black Dog. You know, I just... When people are arguing with what you did with another album, I think you have some kind of significant musical event. And I think they were drawn to that. But a lot of people just love that record, too. And want, you know, and probably wanted someone to spend partial scholarly time fussing with it. <laughs> the, the Tabula Rasa is an interesting piece. I remember when Arvo Pant's work all of a sudden became popular when it came out on ECM. I was living in Paris at the time, and I was able to attend... Two of the concerts that were given by, is it Gideon Kramer, Gideon Kramer? Oh, yeah, Gideon Kramer? Kramer? Gideon, no, G-I-D-O-N. Oh, is it? Gideon yeah. Kramer. Anyway, that's yeah. the guy. Neither of us know how to pronounce it. Right. He's, he's the guy who sort of refound Arvo Pert. And what I really found amazing about Tabula Rasa is, and I don't read music scores, but there seems to be about two bars of silence scored at the end of it. So when it gets to that final abyss of silence, the conductor is still conducting, and the audience has to wait before they can applaud. And, and I think that's just an astounding thing to experience. The fact that the conductor, the musicians, are telling you that this silence is part of the piece, of course, makes one think of, um, you know, Cages 433, etc. But I found that a very moving experience. Yeah, I the, um, the general, th to use silence in a non-rhythmic way, so not just a pause, so before the next beat, which allows for an uninterrupted larger unit to occur, you know, whatever the measure is, 
there's something very interesting. And I do think it's partially um, tied to Cage. I know Lamont Young uses fairly expansive silences. And that happens on the on the Eno, particularly on the second track, where there's just nothing happening. But it's not at a regular pattern. And then you really feel it as silence. I think when the silence is freed from the rhythm, you really start to feel it. Yeah, when the silence is expected between movements or between songs on, on a record, then it's just normal silence. And, and it's the moment where, or like you're in a concert hall, it's the moment that you can cough. Yeah. Uh, but those are, those are musical conventions. Um, you know, it's one thing when we have space between the beats in a 4-4 in a four, four measure, you know, we, we expect there to be space. But it's another thing when space is used unconventionally. Uh, I think that's when, you know, the listener's mind is kind of thrown into a loop-de-loop. -loop. Yeah. I, I, for me, and I think this is part of the cage um, point, but it, it's a way of experiencing whatever sounds you've just heard and the performances uh, that it, that's always, even though as it absorbs you, is still related to this wider world. And this way of having the music occur in the world rather than trying to replace the world temporarily. For me, that's part of the power of using the silences. So you, you probably still fuss or you might experience like this is a non-conventional space where conventions usually occur. So it's a neat way to allow all the other things we bring to listening to music to become partially conspicuous. Like you were saying, like the guy conducting, even though no one's doing anything. In the Arvo Parent work, what's interesting is Tabula Rasa, we're not talking, this isn't a show about Tabula Rasa, it's about music for airports, but Tabula Rasa is about decay, and at the very end, the music decays to nothingness, but that extra silence lets you hear that final decay yeah. as it fades away and appreciate what comes after it. And it also prevents the Bravo guy from jumping up and yelling Bravo oh, before yeah. the decay is over and everyone starts applauding. Yeah. I'm surprised there isn't the can throwing guy who rises with the Bravo guy <laughs> and tries to take him out before <laughs> he can be overly excited. So music for airports, it is a genre defining record. I remember when I first heard it was in 1978. I had heard, you know, Eno's previous works. I was familiar with discrete music. I was familiar with the four song albums. And yet it didn't seem surprising. Uh, I think in the context of the kind of music that was being made around then, it seemed like it just kind of fit in. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think it definitely fits in for him. There were even, you know, Another Green World has nine instrumental pieces. Uh, music for films had been out. Um. I was struck, and this is not my idea, it may have been in the Andy Shepard book, um, but people were list, buying and listening to soundtracks at the time. And I don't think they were plopping down in their listening chair and reimagining seeing the movie. Uh, and so I know uh, Eno mentions Rota, and, and I suggest in the book, I think the Popol Vuh, Vanner Herzog soundtracks really function that yeah part. i i bought several of those and i would just imagine myself by a river someplace like klaus kinski yeah going like this looking up at the sky and cursing the world always like turning back toward the camera in that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i it, it's true that this this did fit into a musical atmosphere of the time this was the beginning of new age music we did have these soundtracks we were getting i mean philip glass was never ambient but philip glass's music was coming was coming into the mainstream 
And somehow Enos, as I said, it just fit in. And yet, why did this record have such an impact in creating a genre, in creating, you know, the, the, the term ambient? It's hard to say. I mean, I think partly, I just think the album is on the whole... Um, the second track isn't all that interesting, just with the floating voices. Um, while working on the book, I started to find it more interesting just because it was an, it's an outlier. And if you're going to write about it, you better figure out how it's interesting. Um, the, you know, I think partly it just creeps back that way. What we talked about before it, it's just refusal to simply rest in the background. So for me, that experience of being drawn in and then abandoned, because mm. I don't know anyone who can sit down and simply follow any of the tracks and not let their mind wander. Not without some sort of assistance in terms of mental, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could, you could get into the zone, right? You could yeah. get high or do something and then, but but that's different than sort of, you know, like Normal the way listening. Yeah, can follow uh, other musical developments. You know, another factor that I would suggest may have something to do with its maintaining some popularity is that it was sort of the butt of a joke, at least among rock critics who may have liked early Roxy music. Uh, and then, you know, Brian Eno comes out with this artsy stuff, which isn't exactly Aerosmith or or something like that. And, um, you know, I, th I think as a result, it sort of becomes like a... like the punchline of a joke like John Cage's 433 is for some people. And because I remember reading about it in Rolling Stone and it would frequently be, you know, regarded disdainfully. I think that's right. I mean, it, it stays as part of the conversation, yeah. sometimes just by being negated. And then I do think, um, I think you're right. The new age thing is important. The soundtracks, um, the it just seems to be more weirdly musically interesting and then i don't is it 86 is that when the apex twin stuff reappears well um i would say maybe late 80s early 90s is when stuff of that ilk started appearing yeah i think that kind of really put the surge behind an ambient sense and that allowed then people to rediscover it yeah whereas it may have just faded and only been listened to by people roughly our age I think a whole new group started to listen to it because they saw these series of records ambient. And, and it's so, I mean, the music is so asynchronous on music for airports. You know, things just come and go in unpredictable ways. And I think that's a really stark signature without being cacophonous, you yeah. know, without yeah. being just kind of raging sound that you have to tune out. You talk in your book about the context in, in terms of Brian Eno's career, and it is very interesting. Early 70s Roxy music, then he does his four song albums, then he does discrete music, he's done music of films. But the same year that Music of Airports came out, 1978, he also produced that album called No New York, which is yeah. the antithesis of ambient music. Right. And, and, and Eno has always been someone hard to explain and understand, but he's done so many things in so many opposite direction. And I have to say, I grew up in New York, and I saw James Chance and the Contortions, I saw Video Lunch and, and a number of those bands, and this was part of the atmosphere of my music, just as much as Ambient One Music for Airports was part of the atmosphere. So what's interesting is that, at least among my social group, we were able to listen to Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, the No New York, you know, ultra-punk stuff, The Clash, 
and music for airports. And we didn't make, we weren't frozen in a genre like Brian Eno wasn't frozen in a genre. You know, I, I have to confess, so I grew up in, in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, my parents weren't academics, but, you know, it's a university-dominated town. And people listen to a, a lot of things. Uh, Brian Eno was not very popular. Uh, that was New Wave was very popular. So I, I started high school in 1980. Uh, Hip-hop was just becoming something. Uh, and so the ambient thing was more fringe. But people did listen to a wider range of things. There was a kind of non-nostalgic love still for Jackson 5 type music. You know, you would, if you went to... Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, You guys maybe were tougher or, or more cynical. But if you went to a party, <laughs> you know, you would get Nucleus could be on, you know, you would go from the Jackson 5 to jam on it to, you know, an Elvis Costello song to a Clash song. Oh, and, oh yeah, think MTV. I mean, there's a lot of cross-generational stuff going on. You had hair bands, R&B, New Wave, all kinds of stuff. So... Sure, there was people were listening to lots of different kinds of music in the yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. Well, we've done episodes on specific years. We did an episode on nineteen seventy seven and another on nineteen eighty one because they're both such rich musical years. We did an episode on disco. I, I was not a disco fan. I was a deadhead, but disco was everywhere. You couldn't not hear it um, in nineteen seventy eight. Again, the same time as music for airports. That really was an interesting year. Doug, make a note. We should do a nineteen seventy eight episode. I mean, I was drawn. So my initial real you know the person who gets you into seriously listening and tracking down records and was david bowie and it's a similar thing like to, to, to be interested in that music is not to be coerced into a genre you know i didn't like the punk i was hearing because it was so exclusive the, the scene around it and it was i like to talk about it you know what did you think what did you like you know and you were either in or out uh, and, you know, people who love the blues can be this way. There's this kind of rank and file. This is the way things are. Same with jazz fans. Yeah, and yep. I, I was attracted to uh, Bowie and then to Eno just because I could listen to all kinds of different things. And Eno, particularly, you follow him out into very unusual contexts. If you do the six degrees of separation with Brian Eno, you will get yeah. into the strangest. I mean, it goes everywhere from U2 to No New York to ambient music. Talking Heads, Devo. He produced the first Devo album. Devo, of course. That's right. Devo. Field, the field recordings, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Yep. Sure. And then, as I discovered researching the book, you know, he really was heavily into conceptual art as a student before anything like Roxy Music. So, you know, you kind of think, and my, you know, my initial thought as a kid was, here's this guy in Roxy Music who can't do anything, yeah, but he's clever <laughs> and, and he looks good. So he's in the band. But it turns out all that stuff was sort of, that's really where he came from. The fact that he was on a rock stage was the surprising thing. Right. Um, because he should have still been in, in galleries or doing conceptual art. Um, but that's just another facet, you know, and I think that people, there's Eno's enduring kind of popularity, particularly over the last five years, where he's really just, you know, seems to appear in all kinds of places, is because you get to, if you follow him out, like you said, you get a musical education yeah. pretty quick. We're, we're trying to get Brian Eno on the podcast. We've had Peter Chilvers on twice, who works with Brian, who's done these apps with Brian Eno. Brian, if you're listening, we'd really like to get you on the show. I, I must say, though, it's true that so I've been following music. I started high school in 1972. I've been following music since around then, since I got my first stereo from Radio Shack. 
And there is that constant thread of Brian Eno's music through thick and through thin and as it changes in many directions. It was in the early 90s I lived in Tour France and I'd been out of touch with music and I went into a used record store and I found Brian Eno's CD NerveNet. And I took it home and I said, oh, Brian Eno, I haven't listened to, you know, something like this in a while. Put it on. Oh my God, I can't listen to this. Put it away for like five years and maybe even 10 years. And when I finally took it out again, it was like, wow, this is amazing. What did I miss? And it was like so far ahead of its time that I just couldn't grasp it when it came out. Yeah, that happens to me all the time with records. And sometimes I, I, I like to buy and sell all the time because you only have so much space and you're like, you didn't make the cut, you're out of here. And then sometimes you just need to put it away and know I'm just not ready for this or I'm in a different spot. Um, and I, I'm not going to remember the name of the Eno record. It's, it came out around 2001, Another Day. Another Day on Earth. That album is amazing. It's one of my favorite Eno records. I love yeah. that record. It is so good. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of came and went. I didn't see a whole lot of fanfare and... I don't know why it's not on vinyl. It, it's the fifth song record. After the yeah. four song records in the 70s, yeah. it's the first one of him doing songs alone. There was the yeah. um, the record he did with John Cale. It was a little bit different. Um, it's one of my favorite records. For some reason, it's not on the streaming services. So yeah. a lot of people won't be able to hear it. Um, my ringtone that I use for alarms on my iPhone is the beginning of the song, Just Another Day. Yep. I use it now. You know how it sort of fades up? Yeah, it's great for when you want to uh, gently wake up from a nap. Yeah. It's just sort of it, glide you back. It's probably the Eno album I listened to the most in the 2000s. When I would go out walking, I lived in the French Alps, I would go out walking with an iPod, and I would just put that one on. A lot of the songs on there come from an earlier album that wasn't released in the 90s called My Squelchy Life, which did get a release a couple years ago when the, he re-released four records from the 90s, and, and these were like bonus tracks on the second CD. Some of them are exactly the same. Some some are different. But it's true. I, I love those song albums, what he does. But we're running out of time, and I would love to talk about this forever. I think one thing that throws a lot of people off about Brian Eno's work of this type is the randomness, the fact that it's generative music. Can you explain what that means for people who don't know? And how does that change the way we, we perceive the music? Yeah, so I do. It's a great question. The the my understanding when gener to talk about it as generative music is to talk about how it was composed. So if you wonder what's the compositional structure, where did this come from? And the notion is, and he has relations, I think for him, Steve Reich is a big influence here, is to pick things that he liked how they sound, uh, to create a tape loop out of them, and to overlay them without knowing exactly what the length of the loop is so the sounds even though they repeat they repeat at different intervals relative to the other loops and it leads to surprising results and the idea and this is like not quite cage where chance should govern everything it's this neat mixture of chance and judgment um and i do think then to think about generative music then is a nice way to get us to think about what are all the ways uh, what are all the other things which contribute to the generation of music? Um, I know they did this with My Life in the Bush of Ghosts when they re-released it, that you could go online and remix it. Uh, when I was a kid, I would play one of the albums over and against the other part of the album at different speeds and record it to tape and, you know, just to screw around. <laughs> um, and that is a way in which the artist is still there as an artist. It's not... Uh, 
wanting to completely remove the category of the artist, but it's also an acknowledgement of how dependent the, you know, whatever the result is, is on the interplay of accidental forces. And I, I like that Eno hits the mean there, that he's not Cage, who sometimes strikes me as not liking human, human beings and so wanting to remove them from everything. Um, but it's also not a big you know, music of here's my personality, even though Eno has a personality big enough probably for a continent, you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, just yeah, the, the generative music as a mode of, of composition just strikes me as very rich when you still exercise judgment. Yeah, exactly. You know, you could do the generation and then think, ah, that really wasn't very good. Let me try again. I'll put a link in the show notes to a video. There's a show on the BBC that's here every Saturday afternoon called Click, and it's about technology. And they interviewed Brian Eno a year or so ago, and they did a short version of the interview for TV, but there's like a half-hour version you can see on YouTube where he's sitting in front of the computer. He's explaining, okay, let's try this drum loop. Ooh, that sounds really good. And if we add this, and it's really like he's a cook throwing things into a pot yeah. and stirring them up to see what happens. I like the Scape app for that. Yeah. Um, you know, you can just play. And that's why I, I just like you can see for me the best one great way to learn what generative music is, is get the Scape app and generate it. Yeah. Link in the show notes. And I'll have a link to one of the episodes with Peter Chilvers, who created the app itself. So there's a thing that. Brian Eno says, here's the rules, here's the algorithm, as it were, and I'm going to turn this on, and then at a certain point he turns it off, but all of this is just a sort of a potential of what this music could be if it continues. Now, when they released this app, Reflection, two years ago, that Peter Chilvers made, it, basically it is the whole kit, and you can put it on at any time and let it run, and it keeps running. And I remember that when the CD came out, Peter told us that Brian Eno sat down and he just found a 60-minute segment that he liked, and that's what came out on the CD. Yeah. But with the app, you have that open-endedness. One of the things about Music for Airports is while it's generative, it's kind of frozen in time. So you get these same things. As you say, that some of the melodies, they come in there a little bit surprising. But after you've listened to it a hundred times, you know that they're going to come in. And in a way, there's something weird. I would like that when I put that CD on, it is different every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when they re-released uh, No Pussy Footing and then they did the half-speed versions, that was an yeah. interesting way to go. Um, this, is, this isn't the same in terms of the experience of the album, but I do think the album then becomes sort of like the piano track of Robert Wyatt, which he then manipulates. And then the album's been manipulated by Bang on a Can, um, uh, by Psychic Temple, you know, it's been taken up and played in different ways. But see, I find that bang on a can interpretation a bit weird because here's something that was generative and essentially partially random, and they turned it canonical, assuming that this is the way it is, rather than, let's say, taking some of the phrases, mixing them up like Tristan Zara are doing cut-ups and creating their own version. Yeah, I mean, they did bring it into concert hall music. I still think it's incredibly beautiful at points. Yeah. And, and the version of 2-2 does have some improvisational moments. Yep. Um, and so my view is it is a transformation. But if you take that cybernetic view of, you know, now the album is an input rather than the output, I count that as one version. But I don't, it's not like that's the real version. Yeah. Which they somehow rescued and brought to life through acoustic instruments. But it's still pretty kick-ass at points. <laughs> and I'm happy for it. 
But I do think, I mean, one way to, to take up what we're talking about is more people should just experiment it with that way. Yeah. In, in the way you're talking about yeah. it. To see that it the generative music doesn't have to end when it got pressed to the vinyl. Right. That could just become another input in one of those weird Eno diagrams. It would be really cool if Eno released a bunch of loops for GarageBand that you could stick together like that. That would be. Well, yeah, that would be astonishing. We'll, we'll pass it on. Did you have any contact with Eno about the book? No, not really. I, there's so many interviews. I felt like that was uh, um, enough. And frankly, working with living artists, they can be temperamental particularly around people who are trying to explain it. Uh, and I just didn't want to bug him and I didn't want him being bugged to bug me. And I just thought he's already said a gazillion things uh, and, you know, and very insightful on things I put, could work with. Put his interviews in a, in a generative loop yes. <laughs> and then see what the output is and publish that. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, John Weisaker, thank you very much. I remind people the book is called Brian Eno's Ambient One Music for Airports. There will be a link in the show notes. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to us today. Oh, I had a great time, and uh, thanks for having me on. We are now going to tell you about our next tracks for this week. Kirk, what have you got? Well, I think it's fitting that I pick a Brian Eno record for my next track, and John mentioned during the show the album Another Day on Earth. He said it came out in 2001. It actually came out in 2005. I'm looking at it in my iTunes library, and I think the highest play count of any of my records is this album. When this came out in 2005, I mentioned that I would walk around in the mountains listening to this on my iPod, and I played this over and over. So this is the fifth song album after the four records of the 1970s, and you know, 30 years before he did another record of just songs. There's some extraordinary stuff. How how can you describe an Eno song album? It's like, it, it doesn't sound like the Beatles. Maybe that's the best thing to do. There are some weird polyrhythms. There are some strange vocalizations. And there are a couple where he's not singing or, or people are speaking. And the catchiest track of all, Just Another Day, as I mentioned, it's my alarm tone on my iPhone is just one of these things that you just want to sing along to. I don't know why it's not on the streaming services. Maybe, you know, for some reason, there's something different about this record in terms of, I don't know, licensing. As I had mentioned in the show, some of it was on a record called My Squelchy Life, which came out as a bonus CD with some reissues that came out a few years ago. And there's something about this record that's just really attractive. And, and it sounds like it's kind of Eno sending postcards of different types of music. The, the, the music doesn't hang together until you've listened to the record 10 times and you realize that these songs just belong together. Anyway, if you haven't heard it, go check it out. You can't stream it. You know, you could buy a record, couldn't you? So I found another one of those records that I should have listened to years ago, but never did. I'm, I'm Actually, I'm really surprised that no one ever said, you have to listen to this record, because no one ever did. It is the first record by Crazy Horse. It came out in 1971. Crazy Horse is usually associated with Neil Young, uh, members of the band backed him up on his first couple of solo albums. And in fact, pretty much the entire song Cinnamon Girl is Crazy Horse with Neil Young kind of in the background. This album not only features the, the three core members of Danny Witten, Billy Talbot, and Ralph Molina, but also Jack Nietzsche and Nils Lofgren. It's Nils Lofgren's first record. He's only 17 years old. It's really quite a great record. 
they they kind of sound like the band. They kind of sound like Little Feet. They kind of sound like a lot of California bands at the time who were trying to sound Southern, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It's a really very good recording. It was recorded at Wally Hyder's studio, which you know was was the apex of of recording facilities in 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 San Francisco at the time. Every song on here is a nice little gem. Some of the songs are written by Nietzsche and Russ Teitelman. Neil Young contributed a couple of songs. Danny Witten and Nils Lofgren wrote songs on the album. It's just a really fresh, interesting record that seems somewhat timeless, which is why I compare them to the band. They sort of have a, a, a timelessness about them. But I'm again, I'm really surprised that no one ever pointed me into the direction of this record. It's, it's really quite good. It is Crazy Horse, the first album from Crazy Horse, and it's my next track. This was episode number 153 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to a friend or two. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.